This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is uh, Paul Verschur for the Convergent Science Network uh, podcast together with uh, Tony Prescott and today we're speaking with uh, Aaron Scherger. Uh, welcome Aaron to our uh, podcast. Um, you were speaking today in our uh, BCBT summer school and y- you very much delved into the, the physiology of and behavior, if you want, of volition, right, of free will. So do you think we can say anything meaningful about free will at all from a sort of scientific perspective? Um, I think in theory it's possible to do so, but I'm not sure if we've said anything meaningful yet. <laughs> okay. Um, but now, free will uh, is a con- complex uh, concept, as you also indicated in your talk. Um, so, is that the construct? Is that, is you want, is that a natural category if you follow Ryle? Is that what we should be investigating? Is that the, the right starting point? Or would you rephrase it and use a concept like volition or, or decision making? I, I, I tend to use the, the, the phrase conscious will. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, I think I, I think free will is something that if you if you take the the uh, hardcore definition of free will, which is uh, some uncaused cause, uh, that's not something you can really grapple with uh, scientifically. But you can ask questions about the relationship between conscious events uh, and actions, and ask if if there's uh, the right if there's any kind of causal relationship between those two but in some sense then you you first have to also grapple with the so-called heart problem right because now you link it to to conscious states and so how do we access these conscious states in an independent way yeah that's i mean that i think is is a a direction that we're going in Mm -hmm. uh it's not something that uh anyone has has done in the past for that for that very reason uh but we do now have some uh, very reliable correlates of conscious perception. And so we could potentially start looking at those uh, as indicators of the, the presence of a conscious intention and ask whether or not it has the right relationship with the subsequent action or at least the neural activity that, that brings but, the action but, about. But clearly you're very cautious, right, now you, yeah. how you approach this, and I understand that. It's it's but a conceptual minefield. So exactly, but but still, you have to leave some of the mystery to have something to explain. So haven't you scraped off too much now of of the free will volition phenomenon? Well, we 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 scraped away, maybe we scraped away the 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 mystery about the meaning of this uh, signature, the readiness potential, uh, which we thought uh, was a sign of a decision. Uh, and uh, what what we've shown is that uh, this may not be the sign of a decision, right? It it it, it right. Uh, might be the sign of a random process. Uh, and if we if if we're using this uh, this phenomenon, this readiness potential, as a temporal marker against which to 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 compare the time of other events, well, uh, we we may have been uh, uh, deceiving ourselves uh, by 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 interpreting it in that way, interpreting it as a decision. Right. But now we, so we already raised the hat quite a bit, right? But because first, I, I don't want to be too flippant about it, 
uh, even though you, you might still believe it, it's flippant, but you said, well, instead of free will, I want to speak of conscious will, right? But you left an, the notion will in there as a construct, right? Can we do anything with this construct will? What is also from a physiological perspective as a physiologist, uh, is will a useful construct? Can we do anything with that? Well, if, if it maps onto something like an intention or an urge, something, uh, then then yes, I think so. Uh, I I use the word will uh, in 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 this context to 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 be almost identical with with an intention. Okay. So, uh, which is a you could say a, a mental state or or a neural state that uh, represents a commitment to right. to some course of action. And an urge is sort of. Uh, in, in the way that I think people would think about it, it's almost something which is unconscious. You know, you, I felt an urge, you know, I don't know where it came from, but something urged me to go to do this. Um, so the origin of the urge. The origin of the urge, I guess, is unconscious. So, yeah. uh, but the urge itself is. So, so, the, uh, so there's an interesting question you could talk, talk about, sort of unconscious will potentially as well then. Yeah, in fact, I, that's something. Uh, it's very interesting that you bring that up because it's just it's something that I was just uh, recently debating with uh, with colleagues uh, and with some uh, philosophers uh, who really like this idea of the concept of an unconscious uh, intention. Mm. Uh, but my problem with it is, how would you know an unconscious intention if you saw one? Um, I don't know. Behavior, action, arousal. Maybe. Well, I think it's it speaks to the whole question of agency. You know, the, the fact that we have an experience of being agents is why we have this idea of free will in the first place. You know, if we if we did things without feeling we were making choices, we we wouldn't need to have will. But we um, will explains why we have a, uh, a feeling of agency. So I guess, and that feeling of agency is both unconscious and there is a conscious version of it mm. I, I think it's important though to distinguish agency from volition mm. uh, where so age I think we can distinguish between the two I think we, we can say that agency is the the, uh, the doesn't have to be the feeling but the knowledge that uh, my action caused some effect in the world uh, whereas volition uh, is that my thought caused my action, uh, my my desire or my intention uh, was responsible for bringing that action about. Yeah, so usually there's distinction between let's say secondary and, or primary secondary desires, right? So you, you might have an urge, but you must actually desire to execute or follow up on that urge, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a multi-level process that you commit yourself to. And so, so in an unconscious or subconscious urge or desire would never be identified as such by the agent. It just plays out right. underneath the radar, if you want. Right. Right. So, right. so yeah, you always require, by necessity, this idea of a secondary and a primary sort of level of of urges or desires. Right. And then, what you also need is is an agent that actually owns desires mm -hmm. but then there's also what's called the, the reasonable responsiveness right so that you can also right. then deliberate on, on that desire 
So, so they're, 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 these are ingredients you would need to then lead up to, to volition. To volition, yeah. right. Reasons responsiveness is an important one mm -hmm. uh, that's I think in the past has been, has been largely neglected. Uh, but that now everyone is talking about, which I think I, I think it's quite fair. It's true that uh, uh, if we want to give something this label of volition, it should have this property of of uh, responding to reasons. This is right. This is only and of course this is also your trajectory, right? Because you move also in the direction to to link the study of volition um, more closely with decision making, which of course mm -hmm. goes in this direction of of, of uh, deliberation and reasoning and so on. But the other, the other ingredient you need is the ability to do otherwise, right? So if I, if I act following my urge and desire, I'm, I must also be able to understand that I have alternatives. I could have done otherwise. Right, right I could have done otherwise. Yeah, this is, this is a, an important one as well. Yeah, and uh, one that's very important to, to, from a philosophical point of view, but it's, uh, it's very difficult empirically uh, to, to show uh, that you could have done otherwise. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. But okay, so so this is this is an, okay. This this conceptual uh, environment of, of free will, uh, which is indeed complex, the minefield, as you said. But it's now now you you cut through that with with, with this one, a laser in some sense by really zooming in on a very specific physiological feature of of voluntary action, which is this readiness potential that was discovered in the 60s. Um, so why, why do you think the readiness potential as such is, is actually telling us something about, about free will? Um, well, I don't think it is. I think that's the issue, really. I don't think it tells us anything about, uh, about free will, one way or, one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, I think it tells us something about how the motor system works, uh, some potentially interesting things. Uh, but I don't think it's a temporal marker for a decision. It's, it's a, or a temporal marker for a commitment. Because th this would go back to, um, to these classical experiments on the Bereitschaft potential that then fed into the, the, the limit experiments. And you, you laid this out for us in quite some, some detail, the Kornhuber and Dickey uh, 60s experiments. Mm -hmm. And the, the, big, the big mystery that then appeared with Libet was like, well, if I look at the, the neural signals or the neural, the correlates, the neural correlates of decision making, and I compare that to people's ability to declare where they are in the decision making process in terms of making decisions or committing to executing the action, it is there's there's a delay. Right? So so the brain already knows what it's going to do before you know it, which is of course already implying a, a dualism in some sense, right? So so. Are you saying it was a surprise that was no surprise? Come again? <laughs> when, you, when you say it doesn't tell us much about motion, right, right. why were pe people were tremendously impressed with this result, right? And, with the original, and there, yeah. There have been many attempts to replicate it, and no one could actually, there have been successful replications of it, and it's very much accepted as, as a physiological feature of, of decision-making. Yeah, it replicates right. extremely well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's a physiological fact. Yeah. Yeah. But then a huge amount of trees have been killed to, to produce the papers, the paper on which um, many words have been written now about what this means with respect to free will, because with that idea, well, the brain knows what you're going to do before you know it, therefore, right, there's no free will. Um, so so where, where did that interpretation go wrong? Because, okay, 
you have many methodological concerns, right? We can look at, but in some sense, why were people so easily misled about this at the time? Well, because it 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 reliably, very reliably, precedes self-initiated movement, and so the. The, I think the first and it may be sensible conclusion to come to is that that this is uh, this is the brain's way of getting ready to initiate a movement of of of, of planning and preparation for for movement. Um, but of course, the kind of data that we use to get it out it's all correlational. Uh, so you could say, well, we've made the mistake of the simple mistake of confusing correlation for causation. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a bit more than that, but it's that as well. Right, but isn't there also a hidden, a hidden prior in in this whole debate at, at this stage, right? Before we delve into the physiology and uh, the methodology, that there is an implicit, there is an implicit dualism in, in interpretation. There is this whole idea, like oh, every action at any time scale has to be caused by a conscious state, has to be preceded therefore by a conscious state. Which seems a, an arbitrary assumption. Yeah, well, no, I think with the readiness potential, what people are saying is that every action, or at least every voluntary self-initiated action, has to be caused by uh, this same preceding uh, neural state, not necessarily conscious. Right? Um, so I think the conscious bit, you can, you can, you can separate that out. And in fact, and 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 we intentionally evaded the topic of consciousness when we first started working with this, because we just wanted to ask, is this signature, this readiness potential, the cause of the movement? Does this represent the brain getting ready to move? Uh, and uh, I think that's what, we, that's what we, if you want to say, debunked mm -hmm. uh, in a way. But now, so, okay, so here is the readiness potential. It's a slow build of activity uh, that, that peaks just before you initiate the movement. It precedes your ability to, to, to declare where you are in that position in the, in the decision making process. Um, so now the, the first way you debunked that, that story is to say, well, there's no unitary process underlying this. In some sense, an artifact of just averaging um, many observations, right? Because the idea would be that if you have spontaneous fluctuations in, in the brain, um, and these spontaneous fluctuations are sort of slightly biased by some form of, of, of evidence, let's say perceptual evidence about a task or an internally generated cue, then over many trials, this will go to some average state that will exactly look like what you call a readiness potential. But at, at heart, it is essentially just an integration of a highly noisy signal. But even, even on single trials, it's, it's the case. You don't really have to average trials to run into this problem. Um, when you when you select a single trial based on the time of the movement itself, um, you've in a way selected a biased sample, right? Because that that little piece of data that you're looking at ends with a movement, uh, and if you want to understand how movement works, you also want to know what happens when there is no movement. Uh, so. So of course, in in in, in this case, uh, because you have this biased, because you have this biased sample, you see everything through the lens of well, this is what happens before a movement, uh, and you're you, you will 
if you if you look at that, you'll recover in the average or on individual trials a tendency for there to be a, a, a ramping phenomenon, a ramp up to in on the assumption that, that this is a threshold crossing type of phenomenon. Right. And you also test that hypothesis, right, by, by asking your subjects to respond as quickly as they could when you would cue, you would cue the response, right? And then you, you would sort of link the cueing to where they would be in that integration process, right? So you would assume there's some decision threshold, and if they're further away from the decision threshold, you would predict if you now force somebody to respond, the reaction time should be longer than if I forced to respond when they're closer to this reaction. When they just happen to be closer, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And, and this is then just dependent on this on this sort of uh, highly variable uh, fluctuation. Right, right, right. Spontaneous right. fluctuation, whose source you, you don't know about. So, so with that, you came to this idea that you could have explained the readiness potential and also the performance from the perspective of, of a, a circle drift diffusion model, right? So I integrate... Mm -hmm. Uh, this noisy signal, when it hits threshold, I'm going, it's highly variable, averaging across trials gives me something that looks like this redness potential. But um, when, you, when you tested that on your, on your subjects, you could show that, that your model that implements this kind of integration of a noisy uh, fluctuation, and you compare that to the EEG signal you got from your, from your subjects, that it gave you gave you a similar kind of response, right? So you see that, indeed, in, if you compare fast and slow response trials, right, mm. you see that this integration process has reached a different level. Right? There's sort of an offset. That's a difference between these two traces that you extract. Yeah, and importantly, there's a difference, uh, not just before the movement, but before the cue mm -hmm. to make the movement. And and so these are these these uh, interruptions are random. I don't even know when the interruptions were going to happen. Nobody, the, the computer only knows, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, uh, what you see as a as a as a difference in electrical potential preceding the cue can't possibly be a preparatory process because you can't prepare for movement that, that you don't know you're going to make. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that's an important insight, right, from from this model. That indeed, there is no preparation, um, but. Now, if you, if you compare the model to the actual physiology, there is indeed a difference in the offset. But in terms of the details of how the trace evolves, it's not identical, right? So if you would really lay the traces on top of each other, I would do some sort of correlation measure, mm -hmm. I would not get one. Right, right? It's, it's, it's qualitative. The, 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 what the model gives you relative to the reality is qualitative. So, so, so for instance, the model gives a much stronger uh, decay in the trace than, yeah. than you observe in, the, in, in your subjects, while for the fast trials, um, it seems very uh, constant in the model, practically constant, yeah. right, the, the level, while in your, in your subject, it is still sort of sloping down there, some form of decay, right? So there are differences here. Now, this in itself is not a criticism because the model doesn't have to be identical to what you measure, but when is a model good enough, right? So to what, to what extent did you feel that this model was good enough to explain that data? Well, I think, I think it was good enough because it, it made a, a, novel, a novel prediction, mm -hmm. uh, and albeit qualitative, but it, it, it told us we should find a difference between fast and slow responses uh, in this particular direction, uh, and that we found. Now, the fact that it doesn't map on 
to the reality exactly, that leaves uh, some more questions for us to grapple with mm -hmm. uh, in, in the next iteration of but, but it also leaves the door open, and in some sense, in the discussion uh, part of the talk, because it came to that, I could also say, well, maybe the model that explains the data could even be simpler. Maybe it doesn't need to be derivative fusion. Right. And you gave an example. I gave an example, so yeah. Another example, maybe I, I could have just an oscillator that can exist in two modes, right? Mm -hmm. And in the, it's a high energy mode and a low energy mode. And this would then account for the difference between the two traces. And it completely depends on intrinsic property, and I just flip it between the two. Right. Which, which would be a completely solipsistic uh, model, but in terms of the physiology, I could also account for this difference in offset. Right. Right. So why is drift diffusion? So drift diffusion is not the simplest model. Um, well, you can go simpler. I mean, what you need, and what I said uh, after the talk when we were when we were discussing this, what you need at a minimum is pink noise. Mm -hmm. How you get that pink noise. Maybe it. Maybe you can just say, "Well, I don't know how. I don't care how I got it. It's just there." Uh, the drift diffusion model gives you a sort of principled way that's grounded in prior research, mm -hmm. that gives that gives you this pink noise. Right. Um, but then, okay. So so now we have an alternative explanation, right, um, of of the redness potential. Um, so how many how many studies have really confirmed? You think during, in your mind. Uh, the model you propose? There are five or six uh, different different studies have come out that support the theory in one way or, or, or another. Mm -hmm. um, so an, an important one was the 2014 study by Murakami with rats who found a, a ramping-like activity uh, in the premotor cortex of rats uh, when they were doing a task where they could basically spontaneously stop waiting for a big reward and just go immediately get a small reward. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned that, that result, but, um, but, but ramping activity as such, is that sufficient as a signature? Well, it's, okay, so uh, I spoke very quickly. It was not just ramping activity, but it was ramping activity that consistently reached the same level just at the moment that the, that the rat left the waiting station. Uh, and went to get the reward. Uh, so it, at least it's very consistent with the, the, the idea of, a, of an accumulator, of the, the, this would, the, the output of an accumulator, right? Would, we would expect it to look just like that. Okay. I mean, you, you pointed to some interesting evidence from crayfish and uh, rat as well, that, that I, I guess suggests that this readiness potential is something that's just common to brains. Yeah, um, and therefore, you know, probably if the crayfish is doing it, what we normally think of as conscious volition isn't going to be a factor. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would so, agree with you. Um, I mean, they and you also talked about the the idea that this experiment actually there is uh, a weak imperative. You said to move, so it's almost that if people are making a conscious choice, it's when they went walk into the experiment. And agree to do this task exactly and yeah. the task is designed so that specifically you're asked to suspend volition and you know wait for that urge to come yeah so it's really a task that's weighted against having any conscious volition that we would normally think of as conscious volition you know sort of choosing to buy a house or move country or something like these, yeah. these, are, these are conscious choices um, whereas deciding to lift your finger in this 
task or whatever is is it's really designed to to remove anything but the most minimal of conscious choice yeah well i think so i mean it to that extent is it really that surprising i mean for, for you the result isn't uh surprising but i guess you thought though the why why had the scientific community become so obsessed with this result yeah well i think it i mean it is it is just a matter of lifting your finger it is a very yeah it is a very uh simple act um yeah I, i'm sorry i lost my train of thought well i mean they people have pointed to Lebet as evidence against conscious control but if you're a defender or conscious control. You can just say this experiment isn't representative of what we mean by conscious will. You know, it's 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 the minimal amount of conscious will. So even if uh, if Lebet was right and you were wrong, uh, th this doesn't really tell us anything about conscious uh, volitional actions. Yeah, I I, yeah. I I would agree. I mean, you need you need a signature of a decision. Yeah. Uh, and then you need to know that the relationship between the time of that decision yeah. and the time of your conscious decision. So, uh, and if that signature is not reliable or doesn't mean what you think it means, then you can't make those inferences. So it, given that that's the case, for, that the Lebet experiment isn't a useful experiment for to doing this and to readiness potential isn't a useful signal, what would be another way of, of getting at conscious volition that we could imagine experimentally that would be I mean, more powerful i think a more powerful way that I, I alluded to at the end of the at the end of the talk is to use uh, a closed loop uh, by a feedback system or if you want to call it a brain computer interface uh, to drive some external signal directly from uh, cortical activity uh, and then you can ask questions about what happens when the feedback from from uh, you might say an intention, uh, if you will, uh, comes far earlier than you expected it to, uh, far earlier than your brain expected it to, um, and that can tell you some things about the conscious, at least the conscious feeling of volition. But still, it would then depend on on reportability. You know? You'd have to give a report. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't work in, in, in the context of a say no report paradigm, this doesn't work. Right. Yeah. 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 But the other thing is that um, for the you like this Murakami result, which is interesting, okay, we see some integration to thresholds, we see how it nicely lined up before this sort of self initiated action to move from uh, one port in the task as a mouse to the feeding port or the reward port, okay? Let's look at premotor cortex, right? Mm -hmm. Well, usually, also in this whole debate on, on volition, people point more to, let's say, medial frontal structures, uh, SMA, so more advanced in, in, this, in this hierarchy, right? So is it not an issue that we're getting a little bit, let's say, unclear, well, but also localization of these phenomena now? No, I, th I think the area of cortex that they were looking at in the rat mm -hmm. M2, uh, I think, is the rodent, is the rat homologue of SMA, okay. uh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so, so, but then, so we, we have a reinterpretation of the limit experiment, right? And in some sense, you're saying, well, it's less magical than it looks like. 
but still there there is some source of let's say spontaneous activity that comes from somewhere mm -hmm. so is the spontaneous activity then an echo of something that you might want to call volition some agent that is trying to to manipulate this or are you really thinking about just noise that is that is floating around in neural circuits i think it's the latter okay. i think it's just noise um i think uh, you, you need you need more than that to explain and it, to account for for volition um, so then what, what are the properties of neural noise in, in these cortical circuits well one of the most important properties is that it's temporally autocorrelated mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, that is key in order to give you the, the, the kind of result that we it's temporally autocorrelated, temporally autocorrelated which is another way of saying it's pink mm -hmm. it's pink okay. noise it's not white noise Good. Uh, so how much physiological evidence is there that there's pink noise in, in, in these parts of the brain there's there's noise in the brain and in behavior tends to be pink uh, in fact, I would turn that around and challenge you to find white noise <laughs> anywhere in <No>. the brain. <laughs> sure, no, no, I would go more to the other direction. I'm not a big believer in noise. For me, noise just means there's a source of variability that you haven't identified yet. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is more where, where, where I was going with that. So to say pink noise, I think, just means, well, we, we lump a lot of things together uh, and it, it looks like pink noise, right? But in the other means, there's some dynamical state that evolves with the memory. Mm -hmm. right? So as long as you have a dynamical system with some kind of memory, right, right, then okay, stickiness, exactly. Yeah. Then you have your pink noise, right? So, so in the way you decompose the redness potential into, let's say, multiple highly variable traces, right? Maybe they themselves can again be decomposed into something more mechanistic that we can understand, but it's more deterministic than than pink noise itself, right? Is right. that reasonable, or you think really there's there's really a pink noise source in the brain somewhere? Oh, I see. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that there's a pink noise source in the brain somewhere, but it isn't. I think one of the interesting things about the model is that uh, uh, this kind of simple accumulator, uh, its output uh, has has a one over f power spectrum. It's mm -hmm. pink, uh, and uh, that that as I mentioned before, that helps to sort of ground it in in some neurophysiology that has been well characterized in 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 the perception research, right. decision-making research in general. So uh, we have an instance where uh, a very different kind of decision, a decision that is not made on the basis of a stimulus, at least not one that you have right there at hand, uh, is governed maybe by the same uh, kind of mechanism that all decisions are. Right. Uh, the brain didn't have to reinvent the wheel uh, for this kind of decision. Right? So, now, so now we have a reinterpretation of the redness potential in some sense, we have you've deconstructed a notion of volition, and said, "Well, we can just think about it in the same way we think about decision making, and we don't. It doesn't really matter whether you want to call this volition or not. It's a decision making process that we're looking at." Yeah, yeah. And then there are more recent results, and you pointed for instance to this this uh, this work by Freed, but also Soon and uh, and others, um, who then started to to add. More than a black box science to the whole story. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to say, okay, can I, can I, as opposed to do a postdoc analysis, I was going to say, can I predict, right, decisions given uh, some classifier extracting features from my, from my physiology, and I can do this in the Freed case on single cells, right, and um, in the case of soon, 
uh, you can do that looking at fMRI. Right, right, right. So it's, again, it's, it, was a, it was a bit of a game changer, right? It's this whole black box approach. And then surprisingly, these, these, these approaches seem to work. They could, they could predict um, what the decision was going to be by the subject with some improved performance as compared to random um, for free, it was 75% or something like this, mm -hmm. right? But, and they could predict 500 milliseconds before the action was initiated, what the, what the subject would do. But for soon, it was even more extreme, that's what Dylan Hines, right. um, more extreme that it could be up to six or six to eight seconds or something like that, right? Some, some extreme time window. With fMRI, yeah. Right. yeah. And then, then the point was, okay, it, it almost seems to violate the basic principles of the universe, right? Because now I can uh, look into the future. Yeah, I mean, what I think would have violated the basic principles of the universe would be if you couldn't classify uh, what what someone was going to do based on prior brain activity. Uh, that would be strange, right? As if as if that uh, decision just emerged out of ether. Um, but eight seconds might be a bit long. If you can predict before you even get the cue. Yeah, well, I mean, say you're talking about a right or a left hand movement. I mean, it's it's it doesn't seem that unusual to me to think that several seconds beforehand, your brain might be in a state that uh, will tend to bias it slightly towards one or the other. Um, so I, I I don't find that to be too hard to believe. So also eight seconds you would find not too hard to believe in, in the Casey Soon experiments. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't find it too hard to believe. <laughs> okay. Okay, but that's interesting, right? Because with that, you're saying that these, these these fluctuations that would sort of bias you in one way or the other have really a, a rather long history in the dynamics of the brain. Yeah, I guess that's what that's what that points to is that yeah. the that that if if it is related to the f phenomenon of autocorrelation, mm -hmm. so it's has a relatively sluggish right uh, mm -hmm. time constant. Yeah, but that's interesting right? because that would also reduce the states that the system can then occupy. Yeah, although bear in mind that it's you're you're classifying slightly better than chance. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly how we're fifty eight or sixty percent correct, where where fifty percent is just a random guess. Right. Um, would be a very different story, I guess, mm -hmm. if 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 it was eighty or ninety percent. Right. Correct. So when you came across this free result on with the single cells using the support vector machine, or or soon with this fMRI classifier. At the time, were you were you shocked by that or surprised, or this was also already then for you within the realm of the expected? Um, when I when I saw Freed's result, uh, I I wasn't too surprised. Uh, I was already at that time. I was already working on. Uh, I was already doing this work, uh, and had already come to a, a lot of these conclusions. When I when I saw the work of of Soon. Uh, in, uh, that was much earlier. That was in 2008, I think. Um, yeah, I was initially pretty blown away by that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, later, well, sort of revised, uh, revised my, my way of interpreting uh, their results. Yeah. Right, because in the, second, in the last part of your talk, you focus very much on also the methodological challenges that you face with this kind of analysis, right? And... Uh, and you pointed out a number of, of caveats, like for instance, uh, if you use a sliding time window to make your, your estimates, you better be very clear where you put the reference to estimate 
Yeah, you, you, you want to align your time axis to the leading edge of the window, mm -hmm. not the middle or, God forbid, the, 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 the tail end of the window, right? Sure. Because you don't want your classifier to be able to peek into the very future that it's trying to predict. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Uh, that yeah. would be cheating. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then, so, so also you also looked at, at setting up the right uh, reference conditions, like look at, at conditions without movement and with movement, right? And you yeah, talked also yeah. about the role of the autocorrelation. In, in the signals that, that we're analyzing. So, but with all these caveats, um, point to the fact that, that we're overestimating these time windows. That, that's a, if there's an error, the error is in an overestimation of the time window in which you can reliably predict. You mean, we're, if I understand you correctly, you're saying we're overestimating how far back? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it means that. Because okay. um, I, I think, uh, for example, in the soon study, they weren't really using a sliding window. They were just classifying at each, at each TR, at each okay. point in time before mm -hmm. the movement. Um, no, but still, they would have an autocorrelation to then take care of. Yes, although I believe they were, they they did one reanalysis of some of those data, mm -hmm. trying to rule out uh, the possibility that this was just driven by autocorrelation, uh, and. At least their conclusion was that it couldn't be entirely ex accounted for by, by autocorrelation. Um, but that, of course, leaves open the possibility that it could partly be. Uh, right. But, but in your own analysis um, that, you, that you presented to also show the relevance of these adjustments to of the analysis method, you showed that the whole shape of the, that you already called, described as a banana, the whole shape of this redness potential starts to disappear. Right, and this transition point at which you can start to predict is, is, is looks much more discrete or very, very punctuated in time. Yeah, when right? you it's, it's less gradual. When you have properly control, controlled conditions, where as I as I mentioned before, uh, if you want to talk about well, predicting the onset of movement, uh, you want to have data that include movements, and you want to also have data that don't include movements uh, as a control. Right, and and ideally you'd want to have these two and compare them. So this in in a in a more recent experiment that we're now just working on getting published, uh, we did just that. So we, we we used an experimental paradigm where you end up with data epochs that either terminate with a movement or terminate without a movement, uh, but are well matched in other respects. And when you when you apply a sliding window analysis using pattern classifier to that kind of data, uh, you're you can't. Using a very powerful classifier, uh, we couldn't tell apart movement from non-movement epochs until the very last moment, until right. until basically the moment at which the movement was 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 beginning. Uh, and it certainly was was n uh, no fault of the classifier itself because at and after the time of movement, the classifier was at at nearly perfect mm -hmm. performance. Right. Uh, so you couldn't say, oh well, it's, that's just because your classifier isn't good enough. Well, it appears to be good enough. In some sense, isn't the consequence of that that the shape that we gave to the redness potential is not more an artifact of, let's say, insufficiently tuned methods than that it's really in the signal that is really the signal of the brain itself? Like also in your examples, if you have a corrected, your, your corrected signal, um, so for if you if you take out the autocorrelation effect. Mm -hmm. Right. Then suddenly, the meaningful part of your of your uh, signal starts to look very different. It becomes yeah. much more, and let's say, 
an, an S-shape kind of response, a more compressed transition point than the traditional redness potential. So haven't, haven't you with that sort of deconstructed the redness potential as, as an artifact of, yeah. of insufficient methods? I think you can say that, yeah. I think you, you can call it an artifact. If you want an, a, a, an artifact of uh, uh, time locking, at least a tendency to time lock to crests mm -hmm. in an autocorrelated time series. Right, yeah. yeah. And if, if you time lock to crests in an autocorrelated time series, you recover the autocorrelation function, which looks like a slow curve. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you've talked about having the, the right kinds of controls. Um, Patrick Haggard, who was here uh, last year, gave a mm -hmm. talk on a little bit of experiment. I'm sure you know his, his work on this. Has, Absolutely. Has developed some quite beautifully controlled paradigms for comparing volitional with stimulus-driven uh, responses. I think he was using sort of random noise movement, and you had to say which direction the dots were going in. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, his study, I think, also made it a bit more sort of mattered whether or not you, w what response you get, because there was actually a monetary reward. So there's a bit more of an incentive to to do the right thing or to do the most rational thing. And he. Uh, his data suggested that in the case of volitional actions, you see a reduction in the amount of noise. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you see a, a, yeah. a, a slow reduction in, in variability right. over okay. time as you approach the movement. Um, so how, how, what do you think of that result and, and how would you interpret it? Well, I would really interpret it in the same way. I, that is to say that that uh, uh, signal, can that variability can uh, vary in much the same way that uh, uh, the time series can vary in an autocorrelated fashion. Uh, so uh, the same logic that gets you the readiness potential in the experiments I did could get you this, uh, let's say, decrease in variability. But why would it be different between the volitional and the instructed uh, trials? So well, because the... the uh, in, in the volitional case, uh, the time, the precise time of the movement, right. uh, tends to be uh, biased slightly by... So it depends on this on it, the underlying process. Right, whereas the cued, in, in the case of a, an instructed uh, movement, it, that's not the case. So that's one of the key aspects of this explanation, is that uh, when the... Uh, the way I say it is that when the imperative to move is weak or absent, meaning when this precise moment at which you move is not dictated by some stimulus, uh, then you have this question, okay, uh, I'm going to move approximately now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so here goes, I move. And, and you're left with this question of, well, why did I move just right then when I moved and not 200 milliseconds earlier or later, right? There is, there is some freedom there to... Yeah. to to play with. And if the answer to that question is, well, there, there are spontaneous fluctuations in neural activity, and they bias the precise moment at which you move, uh, then if that's the case, then you're guaranteed to recover a slow gradual buildup. But I don't really see how this answers Tony's challenge, because Tony's referring to the Peter Haggard claiming... Patrick. Patrick, Patrick yeah. sorry. Um, um, voluntary control lower variability, acute control, higher variability, right? So 
or no reduction in variability. Oh, right. yeah. Okay, but in cute control, oh, then then we can go back to the literal decision making, where you start to drive, you start to drive the integrators, right? And if you, as soon as you start to add a drive to these integrators, you start to overcome the the, the more spontaneous fluctuation. So you, you would expect to see lower variability there, mm -hmm. right? So so I don't really see how your explanation. Well, that's what you that's what you get. You get a decrease in variability. No, it was a voluntary case that was lower variability. Right, right, right. yeah. But, I, but while I was making the example to go to the decision-making literature where everything is cued, mm -hmm. right? Right. Then also for your model, if I start to drive your model with an external input coming from an external queue, I would start to reduce variability. Yeah, and you and you would you would uh, abolish the this early uh, tail of right. the readiness potential. So, yeah. so, so okay, my claim, and this is why I'm confused now. If you take the Haggard uh, challenge, you say, okay, volition, higher variability. No, lower. volition, lower variability, cute, higher variability. But if you take your standard drift diffusion model with some, let's say, noise, if I now start to get an external cue as an additional input, I start to reduce the noise effect. Right? So, right. so, so isn't that then counterintuitive from this drift diffusion perspective? It's true that it does pose a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think it's not. Uh, I, I think it, the case is not at all closed by that by that evidence because again, that that variability could itself be fluctuating in a random way. Um, okay, but that's maybe a bit of a cop out, no? Well, and essentially, I mean, that's one. Of, I would say, to be fair, that's one of the that's one of the if you want one of the weaknesses of the of the model or of the explanation is that you can all you can always keep saying well that could also <laughs> vary right that could also exactly fluctuate yeah, right. spontaneously yeah, sure. so if somebody comes up with a new phenomenon like, oh we says, just added another free parameter right <laughs> now we have the fluctuation we need yeah. well, you said well that that could fluctuate as well uh, but maybe another response could be also to the tony's challenge in some that people always ignore that that the agent itself is represented, is sending a signal to a decision-making stage, mm -hmm. right? So for you can imagine that the parietal areas, right, uh, around the, the temporal parietal junction that are implicated in, in states of self and agency are generating internal cues, right? Right. So, right, so right. in some sense, so the argument could then be internal cues have a higher gain, let's say, mm -hmm. than externally generated cues. And then yeah. that way I might account for it. But that's not what you said. But I think Patrick's result doesn't imply necessarily that that's due to conscious will, as you said. It could be due to some other internal attentional process. He's agnostic, but Patrick would be agnostic about that. I about think. that, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily help the, uh, the people who want to claim a role for conscious volition, which I think Patrick mm -hmm. is one of those. So, um, so it could be some other unconscious process that's happening maybe it's relinked to attention in some way mm. is attention relevant here why, why i don't know if you, why do you bring up attention uh, um, be very confusing because you you're in a task where you're having to make a decision so you're, you're focusing on am i going to in his task mm -hmm. uh, interrupt this trial go to the next trial so well, that's something you're fixating yeah. on, uh, and also you're instructed. Actually, you're, you're instructed to. Yeah, well, there's a money involved, so you make more money if you make good choices. Yeah. So that yeah. would be a reason for being more focused, which might reduce your neural noise. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Okay, okay, that's fair enough. No, but then, so, so now we're having a problem, right? Because, well, we have many problems. But let's start with, with, with Aaron's problem first. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, okay, great. We're doing fantastically well. Here's Libet. Looked very confusing. Conscious will. Is it an illusion? Uh, what's the causal relation between conscious states and action and so on, right? You resolve that conundrum by saying, well, you just mis you have misinterpreted your signal, right, essentially, right? Yeah, well, what's, uh, should, what's the relation between the readiness potential and action? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So you have to look. You have overinterpreted an artifact. Yeah. Right. And, and you can you can reduce the whole thing into a very simple model where we just have spontaneous fluctuations that that have a little memory, and so they, they can add up to to some decision threshold, right? That brings it in the realm of the standard decision making models. Okay? Yeah, I mean right. it, it accounts for the data in a parsimonious way. Right. But then, then you start to get worried about all the the methodologies involved. And also these crazy long-range predictions people can make about decisions up to eight seconds before they happen, which led to all sort of further speculation, certainly the popular uh, press. And then you start to, to apply all sorts of methodological caveats to say, well, actually the real signal might look very different from the randomness potential. Mm -hmm. The real signal looks much more like a rather constant baseline state it shows a very rapid transition to a sort of an upstate shortly before the decision. That's yeah. Yeah. Correct. Right? Yeah. But with that, you invalidate your earlier drift diffusion model. That's now irrelevant. It doesn't invalidate it, right? In fact, it 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 it, it the idea is that it confirms it. Uh, so the the uh, the you say two competing camps or two competing hypotheses are for an early decision, which is you would might say, I mean, he's not here for us to ask him, but I would say is Libet's view, the decision is early. The, 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 the neural, what I call the neural decision, right? Uh, to, to, to contrast it with the conscious decision. Um, that the, the, this, this is an early decision, uh, whereas our model says, well, no, the decision only happens, and, and, and the Murakami uh, uh, used the same model, or the same kind of model, essentially. Um, the decision doesn't happen in, until the threshold is crossed, and that happens very late in the game, very close to the time of, of, of the movement. And so that if you were one, the, the upshot of that, one prediction that it makes is that if you, were, if you compare movement to no movement, uh, they should look very similar until the very last moment, mm -hmm. until, un, un, until uh, that, that threshold, if you will, has been crossed. Right. So. We started with, with sort of a very complex picture on free will, and now we end up with something relatively pragmatic, physiological, controllable, in some sense, right? Mm, we're, mm. we're in the decision-making domain. Yeah. yeah. Is that where you want to be? Or do you want to, again, jump out of that and, and, and go back to this fundamental question around conscious will, as you call it? Because you, and sometimes, you, now it's out, it's out of the picture, right? It doesn't matter anymore. Now we're looking at decision-making. About about self-generated actions. Yeah, I think we should stay firmly grounded in in, in the world of decision making mm -hmm. uh, and 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 self-generated actions. Okay. Um, and I think there's more that we can do with this model and models like it. Um, I think even even if ultimately the model is all wrong, I think just the idea of of taking this kind of phenomenon and bringing it 
let's say, down to earth and grounding it in a computational model uh, was was an important step. Um, and we've we've already gone beyond with with this same model. We've we've done something very simple, uh, which is just to add a second threshold, slightly lower than the threshold for activating uh, movement. Let's say that we we say well this this lower threshold represents sort of self-monitoring process so that when when we cross that lower threshold some information is generated uh, to the effect that well a movement is very likely to happen very soon because I'm very close to the threshold um, and using that uh, simple variant uh, of the model we were able to confirm makes and confirm some predictions about uh, the conscious urge to move, what, what Libet called W time uh, for the will. Um, so on, uh, on trials where the subject waited a longer time to produce a movement, uh, the assumption is that the, the, the ramping signal was ramping uh, not as steeply uh, as in trials when the subject uh, responded earlier. And so the delay between the crossing of those two thresholds would be longer. And that would, that would tell us something about the relationship between subjects W time, when they felt they had the urge to move, and the movement itself. And that, those, that prediction. But that says something quite disturbing about our notion of free will, which what we have interpreted till now as my moment of choice I decided to make a movement turns out to be just some internal monitoring system reporting that a bit of my brain that I'm not aware of has passed the threshold and I'm going to make a movement whether I urge it or not. That's what it may be. So it's, it's, it's really quite a frightening conclusion for people who would like to believe in free will because it shows that these feelings that we have about will could just be completely wrong. Because that, cause you, would, you would have a feeling that I've willed that, but it turns out you haven't. Something in your brain has happened and this has popped into consciousness and you've interpreted that as well. If it's true for that event, it could be true for all sorts of other decisions you make in your life, that they, right. some bit of your brain made something happen and then it was reported up to consciousness. Although I wouldn't say that it's, uh, you, you, you said that maybe that feeling was wrong. Uh, I wouldn't well, say- The interpretation of it that we put on it is that we made a choice. Ah, I see. So mens rea doesn't hold then, right? In that model. In that model, no, not very well. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's um, an important point because in the of the feeling I was having, like you, you invited us to some big party um, with lots of uh, booze and God knows what and entertainment, but in the end you open the door and and it's an empty room and there's no 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 drinks, no snacks, no nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's no decision making. Yeah. So haven't you haven't you now actually thrown out the dancers with the bathwater uh, because of the limitations of your methods? I mean the the goal here was not to prove that free will exists, right? But was was to shed some light on how this all. No, works. you shed some light on it by turning the light off. <laughs> Well, then you turned the light on and the room was empty. <laughs> the room was empty, I think. I think. No, yeah. Yeah. no, but the risk is he actually tur turned on the, the lights in another room. Right. We, we, have shifted, <laughs> we have shifted now somewhere else. No, I we think this is where we thought the party was. You put the lights yeah. on, there is no party, there's no will. There's just these things 
causing stuff to happen and and you heard about it you know mm-hmm. yeah so uh i mean is the what do we do but it is deeply now? dissatisfactory well only if you wanted to believe in conscious will <laughs> well, no, the, <laughs> because you believed is, that there was a party to go to that's right i like yeah. parties but <laughs> the thing is there are things there are things like like mens rea and there are there are costs of failure right so if we really believe with wagner and his friends mm-hmm. that that conscious will is an illusion and or not operational there's a huge cost associated with that because we're dehumanizing ourselves and we're giving up the sense of responsibility for action the cost of that is huge and if you do that to protect relatively primitive scientific models and methods then i think that's a very naive move because i do believe given the cost of failure we also have to critically question than the models we use and we already know drift diffusion is great where you do really boneheaded tasks as a macaque monkey for months on end mm. great we get drift diffusion but as soon as i make the decision that's just a little bit more complicated drift diffusion is not predictive of anything if you give a complex brain a stupid task you get a stupid code and the stupid code can be deciphered by boneheaded neuroscientists <laughs> but the thing is if you give a, a complex brain a complex task it uses complex codes and that's where the beauty is and that's where the scientific challenges are so so what i feel now we're a bit on the slippery slope oh my methods are not really helping me let's just rephrase the problem let's scrape away all the complexity so that at least i can hold on to my, the method that has given me tenure that's not for you okay but this yeah, yeah. sociology <laughs> of the field right right, right. So drift diffusion drives me mad indeed because i think it is distorting our understanding of decision making and certainly of voluntary decision making i don't right? think you can just point the drift diffusion for this i mean no, no, I, this, that, this is just the, a, so the, all, all you need is is for that noise to be a auto associated yeah so that's all you need for this result to happen and the the problem for for, for your version is that you want to uh have some role for that experience of making a choice and this uh result shows that you can have an experience of making the choice without having made any choice in consciousness that, that matters so so that i mean there may be other situations in which you make a choice that matters but 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 in this in this situation you have the the, the qualia you have the experience of making a choice but but no we've Look, shown that the, i appreciate you really your attempt to mediate here but i take offense in your summary <laughs> <laughs> because what I, the point i was making earlier aaron yeah is showing to us that pink noise doesn't do the job unless it's some really special case of it because he shows a much more s-shaped transition right where you don't have sort of gradual accumulation of anything there's accumulation of nothing and then a very rapid switch well that's when we squeeze the pink noise out of the picture exactly right yeah but that will be the real that'll be that'll be, that'll be the real ground truth of the decision making signal mm. abrupt you, right yes yeah late it's, and abrupt so it looks very different than than than, than this sort of autocorrelate that autocorrelate signal some background thing that happens has nothing to do with the decision making process right right this is the consequence no it, it's i mean it is it's part and parcel of the of the decision making process but it's just that when we look at it through the lens of this event locked averaging mm-hmm. we see it in that in that misleading right. way yeah but it's like it's like a non specific contributor yeah it's not a decisive contributor to right. that decision right right 
So, right. so, um, but but I think would be as scientists, we must also be willing to say, well, we don't know, <laughs> we don't know. But for instance, it's more than decision making because for the for the free will case, there is a layer of the ability to reflect upon the decision, to to own the the. The, the urges to act, to not only act, but to also the I and I want to act. Mm-hmm. Right? I own mm-hmm. this urge to act, and I experience that, and I can declare it. And indeed, also this ability to know, and I could have done something else. But the many requirements of which the decision-making process is one of the requirements, but it's not the whole story. It's only one of the necessary conditions. And there, I think we should be careful. So yes, studying decision-making can be fantastically useful. Drift diffusion models can be a great tool to do that. But they're not the whole story. This is, so this is why I got a little excited. Because I feel like well, we yeah. should be careful not to collapse the complexity of voluntary action into the more reduced view of decision making, which is only a necessary condition. I mean, I think what what we could agree is that in this task, it's a very minimal task for any kind of volitional mm-hmm. control. And uh, I think what Aaron's done is produce the sort of uh, the minimal model of that, and Occam's razor said, "Well, why should there be anything more if this uh, random process that's autocorrelated is enough to explain the result?" Then that's quite possibly all there is. The disturbing thing for you is that the the qualia associated with it are like the qualia associated with other decisions. So I think the pressure is now on people who want to defend, you know, sort of some strong role for consciousness in decision making to find another paradigm. Where, the, where you can demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. Because. Th- th- you mean where, where volition then comes in as a separate factor? Or what? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, uh, or in this paradigm to show that it's more than just this minimal model, this. Uh, I mean, th- there might be something else that's happening in the, those last few hundred milliseconds. Right. Would you agree with a summary error? Yeah, and I, th- I, mean, I mean, I think one of the, again, one of the things that. that uh, to be recommended about the about this model is its simplicity. It's a very simple model, and it accounts for the data, and that puts I think that reverses the burden of proof in a sense. Uh, now to the other side, say well why why would uh, millions of years of 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 evolution result in a, a human who lives w- one full second behind their own. Uh, uh, Self-made oh, decisions. That. Yeah, that's another interview. But the thing is, we already know, as you know, Libet, he, he understood the consequence of his observation, or the implications of his interpretation. So he said, well, maybe the free will acts in in holding back the action, in, in interrupting the action, in stopping the action. Right, right. Right. And actually, it turns out, if you start to do tasks where you have stop signals, so like like countermanding, mm-hmm. then drift diffusion models stop working. They're not predictive of anything. Okay. So so you already have your counter example. That need if as soon as you start to voluntarily withhold action because you get a stop signal, mm-hmm. right? Then just integration to threshold is not explanatory in any way of the performance of, of a macaque monkey. Okay. But I mean, the other way to, you know, recover your notion of, of human and of choice is to embrace the unconscious. As a source of, as part of the self, and a source of your decision making. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, and if you do that, then, then none of this is a worry because you just say, well, yeah, uh, I am. I'm not just my conscious process. I'm the whole of what my brain is doing in the context of the body, 
and that collective system is making sensible decisions. Absolutely. And some of them are being reported to consciousness. It shouldn't bother me if most of them aren't, as long as they're good decisions. And oh, as, as long as your conscious urge yeah. is, is, is a, a, a meaningful best guess on the part of yeah. your brain as to the decision that you made and the time that you made it. And, and if consciousness is able to monitor that mm-hmm. and say, well, hang on a minute, we made a poor choice there, maybe we can... Maybe there's a role for consciousness and thinking. They should be actually trying to read my papers. <laughs> no, I know. I'm telling you what was in your papers. Ah, thank you. Okay. You know that I see consciousness and also volition act towards the future. Mm-hmm. And all real-time control, as the ones you manipulate these experiments, is all subconscious. And consciousness is catching up because consciousness tries to reconfigure you for the future. So you will yourself into the future. Mm. And that's the big mistake people make. They think real-time control, because they never program robots or control anything, they think real-time control is, is conscious. It cannot be. It has right, to be automated, right. quick, because that's your survival system that has to act in real-time and anything can happen to you. But what you then do, you reassess, and that's why the monitoring also comes in, you have to reassess, you revalue, you extract norms from your environment, and you reconfigure your real-time control so in the future you can will yourself to be better. So in that sense, indeed, this is. Right. I don't. I'm not scared by that. We're converging on a common view. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. that'll be really yeah. scary. So, Aaron. So now, now that we all agree and and are humming along, and you promised to read all my papers, um, so you have been wading through this really difficult territory, this minefield of of volition, and uh, you're still standing, which is amazing. That's a real accomplishment. So you're a great scientist. So given that experience and these, these accomplishments, what is Aaron's law that we should follow to understand the brain? Mm. Well, I think w- what we should start looking at and what, what hasn't been the case uh, in the past is, is uh, look at instances where uh, conscious states might actually uh, play a role in, a, in an upcoming decision. So there's... I, I, I think that in the literature there's been a maybe because it's easier to do maybe because it's sexier but there's been a bias toward finding examples of things that you can do without consciousness um, and that that leaves open the possibility that there are some things that you do need consciousness for uh, but we haven't been spending our time uh, investigating those so how does so it, there, how do we turn it to Ah, I don't know about a law. Look, it has to be printed on a mug or something, right? Aaron's law. So it's like 10 words. What's Aaron's law? Aaron's law is uh, uh, some actions, some volitional actions might actually be uh, conscious, Uh, might actually have a a conscious uh, antecedent, let's say. Um, So we've we've looked at a lot of of examples of, of tasks where uh, you, you, consciousness seems not to be involved. So Aaron's law is some consciousness might play a role sometime. Yeah, sometimes. Maybe rarely, but maybe sometimes, <laughs> right? All right. Uh, the other thing is, so we were in, in Paris recently for our Living Machines conference, which was fantastic. And Tony really likes Paris now, so he wants to go back to Paris. And he will come visit you four years from now. Great. <laughs> and he will, he will come and check, he will come in the notebook and check whether you have actually falsified or confirmed the key hypothesis for your scientific program. 
So what's the, the key hypothesis you would like to see tested in that time frame? Mm. Four years. Four years. Prediction, yeah. Um. Or maybe by then the channel tunnel will be filled up with concrete. So maybe <laughs> yeah. earlier, not two years. Maybe two years, yeah, okay. earlier. Um, I think what we'd, what I'd like to see done is a test of whether or not, uh, to the extent that this can be done, uh, whether or not one can draw a causal arrow between conscious states and actions. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if, if we could get a handle on how to, how to come up with a paradigm to, to test that, I think that would add sort of counterweight to the kind of research that's been done uh, over the past decades. But what's the specific prediction then from that? Ah, um, I guess it's true. I didn't give you a prediction. That's right. Yeah. So I paid enough attention. To okay. So 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 yeah. So okay. A big a, a big prediction is this. Uh, you can uh, what what the model one of the things that the model says is that the the let's say the character of the noise will in part determine the shape of the readiness potential. Uh, so if you let, uh, let's start with uh, describing the, the, the power spectrum of pink noise has this 1 over f slope to it. Uh, so that the, the slope of the power spectrum uh, gives you what, we, what you could call the character of the noise or the degree of autocorrelation in the noise. Um, so one prediction that follows from that um, highly uh, counter counterintuitive prediction, or at least a, a novel prediction, is that uh, this the the character of the noise, the one over f exponent of the noise, should predict at an individual subject level the shape of the readiness potential. Um, isn't that a retrodiction? Don't you already know that, given your, the results you had? No, no, not at all. Um, mm -hmm. So that no, that's that's very much a prediction and and a, and a strong one. It's difficult to test, uh, but it is testable. All right, Tony, you, you wrote it down. Mm. <laughs> it's, on, it's on record on tape. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Aaron Sugar, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.